Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respects to them and their cultures and to elders both past, present and emerging. Going off in the puddle of sirens going off in the puddle of. There are a lot of sirens in the background, and Jess is driving me absolutely batshit with cat bullshit today. I love cats like a normal person. Jess loves cats like the cow lady from The Simpsons. <laughs> That's actually oh, quite funny. A- that should be an Instagram. That should be my Instagram photo. The crazy cat lady from the yes, Simpsons. Has really... nobody ever compared you to her before? But I don't make nonsensical garbled noises. Yeah, roo roo. <laughs> that's my Jess impression. I don't know if she's ever said that on the podcast, but that's what she says to the cat. She calls the cat roo. Little roo roo. I hate it. <laughs> anyway, Hi. welcome to our true crime podcast. Hi, welcome murder to in the land of Oz. Can I have a podcast? You know how you have Everybody Wants to Be a Cat? Can I, I don't have anymore. Everybody Wants to Be a Cat? I don't have Everybody Wants to Be a Cat anymore. That's well, you finished. did have it, but you know. So you want a podcast, Zane. Ellen wants a podcast, Nobody Wants it to Be a Cat. About more, He asks, what about? <laughs> about what? It's specifically, I'll change the name. It's Nobody Wants to Be a Person in a Room with Jess when there is also a cat in the room. No, we're changing it to Nobody Wants to Be in a Room with Jess while there's a cat in it. <laughs> That's true. Hi, everybody. Um, <laughs> sorry. Saba Nation. Uh, welcome back to our latest episode on our Northern Territory season of Murder in the Land of Oz. How are we going? Pause for response. That's great. We've missed you too. Um, thank you all so much for your feedback, especially um, the last couple of cases we've done in the Northern Territory. Just want to say big thank you to a lot of people who sent me so many lovely messages about the Coniston Massacre because you all could sense how fucking nervous I was about doing that. We got a lovely message from – where is where is our girl? Um Tiana, she sent this beautiful message. She was like, I love your podcast. I listened to this episode in the car with my boyfriend who's uh, First Nations and he said it was well-spoken, factual and respectful and we both liked it. Thank oh, you, Tiana, Princess Tiana. I'm so I know. honored that and you like, and Prince Naveen listened and to can our podcast. Can I just say Tiana like is – I can't show you – like her thing's pro- like private. But, oh, like, she's stunning. Doll, your Instagram profile photo. Oh You're stunning, hun. You are um, Princess Tiana. You are Princess Tiana. Um, so, yeah, that brings us to if you would like to follow us on Instagram, uh, we are Murder in the Land of Oz. I put up a hilarious meme today of um, the right way to carry a man you just killed. And it's like, you know, when when you start a new workplace and they do like how to carry a box and this guy's like bending with his knees to pick up a nice. dead body. <laughs> nice. I, I saw funny. it. I follow us on Instagram. Oh, do you? That's nice. Um, I do. That's cute. Um, yeah, so how many episodes have we got left on Northern Territory? Just one. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Yeah. And it's the big one. It's the, bi- it's the big kahuna. It's the big kahuna. Wow. Strap in, dolls. This We're gone- almost done. Fuck. How, like, I cannot believe there's been almost two years of us doing this. This is insane. My throat has been sore for, like, like 20 months at this point. <laughs> Um, yeah, so we're very excited and then we're going to be like 
We've got some ACT um, stuff that we're going to be talking about. And then we journey into the new phase of Mitlu. Mitlu 2.0. Yeah. We're not fucking off. Like the podcast will still go ahead, but we've just got to figure out how the fuck we're going to do it. But that's right. That's our job. Your job is just to listen and make sure you're rating and reviewing and send us an email. We haven't had an email in ages. And I love checking out email when we got a bunch of emails and we got no emails. Okay, please send an email. Please, please, please. <laughs> For please Jess's sake. Email. Um, obviously, if you would like to become a Patreon, our Patreon uh, link will be in the show notes as normal. We've had, uh, we haven't had anyone to shout out recently. Guys. Drop on the ball. No, I'm joking. I'm joking. It's okay. We're heading into a recession. Mm. Money is important. Every, like retail is dying. Every single every every single store is closing down. Wild. Um, yeah. And then obviously please rate and review and subscribe on uh, your iTunes. You can leave us a review on Facebook or you can send us a little DM on Instagram. I read them all because I have no life. Um, when I when I post a photo on Instagram, Jess likes it, and then zero point three seconds later, Murder in the Land of Oz likes it. I um, I like I like showing the love. Speaking of love, uh, it's Valentine's it's Day week. Valentine's Day. Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ! Trust me, I work in floristry. It's fucked at the moment. Um, so to those people who have loves, enjoy them. Don't take advantage of it. For those of you who don't, let's have a seance or like a witch night. Which night? Witch night on a Friday. The thing is also, can I just say, little PSA if we've got any uh, people wanting to do stuff on Valentine's Day, it's a Friday night this year. So if you need anything, if you need hotels, if you need restaurants, if you need flowers, get it's, in now. Yeah, like it's, too, it's now. already too It's already late. too late. You should have done it a week ago, but... Jesus fucking Christ, Valentine's Day. But for Day. those of you, for those of you wanting to do witch shit on Friday, it's never you're too gonna late. Be fine, you're, you're gonna, gonna have be so fine. much free time. All well, of those little like clearings in the woods are going to be so available. Because I was meant to do a witch night last year for Valentine's Day, but then I went to um, Death for Salesman at Queensland Theatre. Had a great, stunning Valentine's Day, seeing the most depressing play ever written. Yeah. And looking fab while doing it, by the way. But, like, fuck. That was a great Valentine's Day. Stunning. All right. Well, shall we go on to our case? Cool. I'm depressed now. Yeah. Um, Rock on. Anyway, um, I'm actually going to be with a friend. A friend is coming to visit me. And we're going – well, she is going to be trying on wedding dresses on Valentine's Day. So Are you going to see what? No, I said a friend oh. is coming to visit me. Oh, right, 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 right. Um, so I'm going to watch somebody else put, try on wedding dresses on Valentine's Day because they are engaged and I am the dead opposite of engaged. We I'm engaged are alone to Satan. by choice. <laughs> We're engaged to Satan. That's a funny TV slogan. Write that down, Zane. TV slogan? Are we going to have a TV show? T-shirt, t- t- sorry. T-shirt slogan. T- I'm, engaged I'm engaged to, to Satan. Satan. Should we talk about murder? Let's talk about murder. Yay. Um, so this case has frustrated me more than any murder that I have ever researched in my lifetime. Um, I'm so mad at myself picking it because it made me so cranky. Oh. And um, it could, just got to a point in time where it was too late to change it. And I have no idea if it's going to be good true crime listening. But anyway, here it is. So I picked it initially because um, it was a case that I never heard of. Mm. And it was a case that not many other people have ever heard of based on the fact that there is almost no information about it out there on the internet. Oh, it's one of Dem ones. It's one of Dem ones. There's no there's no news clips. There's no nothing. There's no current affair. There's like four articles that are all exactly the same. Um, and part of the reason for that is that this case occurred at almost the exact same time as the Peter Falconio murders. So the, the attention was somewhat nicked from that. And also, I think, on my soapbox... Part of the reason why there's not a lot of information about this case is because the victims were two um, Asian sex workers. So as we all know, you know, people who work in sex work are often considered to be... Sex work is work. Sex work is work. Exactly. And, you know, um, sex workers are disproportionately the victim of violent crimes in comparison to other industries. And, you know, I think particularly in the case of these uh, people were... The victims in this case were Asian. I think there's like it's a race thing. It's a sex worker discrimination thing. It's uh okay, yes, 
this other high profile case was occurring at the same time. So it's somewhat understandable that other cases have fallen by the wayside. Not um, so an that's excuse. Not, not an, an excuse. excuse. Not an excuse. Um, I wanted to to talk about this case to kind of maybe bring it to a few more people's attention because, you know, these people were murdered and they deserve to be heard about. Um, but also it's very frustrating by the end of it. You're just going to be like, oh, what the fuck? So brace yourself. So the victims in the case were um, Phuong Shri Kroksamrang and Somjai uh, in Samnan. So both of these women were from Thailand and both of the women, as I said, were sex workers and they were operating, operating out of the Palms Motel in Darwin. So Fong was 58, although she looked much younger, and she went by the name of Ponzi, and Sumjai was 27, and she went by the name of Noi. So Noi had come to Australia um, some seven years earlier with an Aussie man that she had met at a resort in Thailand, and they were married in Bondi in 1996, but their marriage didn't end up working out, and Noi worked to support herself, as well as her parents, sisters, and her 10-year-old son, who were back home in Thailand. Ponzi had lived in Australia for quite a long time, I couldn't find as much about her. I could not find much about the victims at all. There is not a lot of information about them on the internet, even less known about Ponzi. I know that she had been in Australia for, I think, I want to say 20 years at the time that she was murdered, and she had been married as well. Um, but they had both found themselves working as sex workers in Darwin. I'm going to call them by their nicknames, um, Ponzi and Noi, throughout the episode, because that's what they were referred to as in the trial. I'm not trying to, like erase their names or whatever. I'm just trying to not use more names than I have to just to try and keep it somewhat simple because this gets very confusing later on. Okay. So on the 29th of February 2004, an 18-year-old boy named Fu Nok Trin called Ponzi in order to make an appointment with her and another woman for the following day for sex. Ponzi agreed, they set upon a price, and Trin told her that he would drive into Darwin to collect the women and bring them back to his place the next day. So Trin was born in South Vietnam in 1985. His father had been a soldier in the South Vietnamese army, and then afterwards he worked as a rice farmer. So Vietnam, as in the 1980s, as you can imagine, Jesus was not a particularly fucking Christ was not the best place in the world to be. Um, so they ended up leaving Vietnam and moving to Thailand uh, when Trin was really young, and they spent three years in a refugee camp there. Um, and then after that, they moved from Thailand to New Zealand, arriving in 1988 when Trin was three years old. Um, Trin went to primary school and part of high school in Auckland before his family migrated again, this time to Australia, settling in the Brisbane suburb of Dara when he was in his early teens. Dara. Dara. I've been there twice. It's a bit of a hole. <laughs> the first time we went to Dara, there were two people riding a horse on the street. And There's also we went- a good balloon place in Dara. What? Yep. A balloon place? Yep. A they, balloon do like cus- they do like custom balloons. Cool. Like for decorating. So if you're in Dara, um, go to the footy field, uh, look out for people on horses, and head to the balloon shop. <laughs> nice. Uh, so yes, he lived in Dara. And then in 2000, Trin's father was on a trip to the Northern Territory visiting friends, and he saw a parcel of land for sale at Marakai, which is 80 kilometers southeast of Darwin, and he thought it was a bargain. So he purchased the land and set up an okra farm there, bringing along 15-year-old Trin to help out on the farm. Um, Trin started going to Timinmin High School in Humpty Doo. The location of <gasps> the Humpty Doo Poltergeist. I organize a lot of flower deliveries there. Wow, that's so lovely. Um, and while at high school in Humpty Doo, he met Ben McLean. So, also don't know if it's McLean or McLean. I'm going to go with McLean. Potato, potato. Potato, potato. Ben McLean was very much a typical Aussie country boy. Uh, McLean, now I've said McLean. McLean. That's what we're confirming it to be. McLean. McLean. McLean idolized Trin, and he was loyal to a fault, and he thought it was Trin as someone like a role model or someone to aspire to be. And they were really, really close friends. Um, Trin went back to Queensland for a short time in 2001 to undertake an apprenticeship, but he wasn't really into it, and he left, returning in 2002 to keep working on the farm. And shortly after that, um, McLean would join him on the farm, and they both worked there, picking okra, hanging out. So on the 1st of March 2004... Trin headed out in his father's van to pick up Ponzi as they had arranged. He first stopped at the super cheap auto in Berrimah and purchased a length of red rope, some cable ties, and masking tape. 
as well as filling the car up with petrol. He called Ponzi at around 2.45pm to confirm the arrangements, like saying, like, yo, I'm on my way, you ready? Um, Although the appointment had been made the day before, it seemed like Ponzi had not yet secured a second woman to join her on the appointment, so she called um, a co-worker of hers, Bunlu Sriwathana, to join her for the job, but Bunlu didn't pick up the phone. So Ponzi called Noi instead, and it was kind of knowing that Noi, like, because she was supporting all of her family members, she, like, would never turn down a job, even if it was, like, last minute or anything like that. So Noi was like, yep, I'm with you. Let's go. So before they left, both Ponzi and Noi paid their weekly rent at the motel, um, and they were both apparently in a happy mood at the time. So Trin arrived at the Palms Motel around 3.15 to pick up Noi and Ponzi and drove them the hour or so back to his dad's property at Marakai. Ben McLean didn't know what was going to be happening in that afternoon, but when Trin came back to the property with the two girls in tow, he didn't object. So both Trin and McLean had sex with Noi, and Trin also had sex with Ponzi. Then then McLean and Trin overpowered Ponzi and Noi and bound their wrists and ankles with cable ties. Why? Literally nobody knows. When Ponzi tried to resist, Trin punched her in the face. They wrapped masking tape around Noi's mouth so she couldn't call out. They then forced the women into the back of Trin's dad's van. Um, and McLean suggested that they bring along with them two car batteries that were on the property. McLean drove the van while Trin sat in the back with the victims. Trin demanded that Ponzi tell him the location of her bank cards and the corresponding PIN numbers. At some point during the drive, there was a struggle in the back of the van and a beaded necklace that Ponzi was wearing broke, scattering beads all over the back of the van. Trin took out the red rope he had purchased earlier in the day and strangled the women with them, one after the other. And at some point on the drive, one or both of the boys attached the car batteries to the cable ties that bound the woman. McLean stopped the van on a bridge on the Adelaide River. When they pulled the first body out of the van, the weight of the car battery snapped the cable tie, and Trin reattached the batteries to the bodies using the red rope. They then threw Ponzi and Noi off the bridge into the Adelaide River below, the car bat- batteries causing the bodies to sink rapidly. The, body, the boys hoped that the crocodiles that were usually abundant in the Adelaide River would permanently dispose of the bodies for them, and they drove off in the van, leaving behind a number of the beads from Ponzi's necklace scattered on the bridge. So they returned back to the fam- farm at Marakai. Um, at some point in the afternoon, Trin left again, leaving McLean behind at the farm, and Trin went back to the Palms Motel and searched Ponzi's room for her credit cards. At 10.41pm, a balance inquiry was made on Ponzi's credit card at a Commonwealth Bank on Smith Street in Darwin, and two transactions were immediately made from the account, one for $1,000 and the other for $700. At 10.43pm, another of Ponzi's credit cards was used at the same ATM to perform a balance inquiry and then to withdraw another $1,000. Phone records and security camera footage would trace Trends Drive back from Darwin to Marakai, and CCTV footage taken at a Shell service station in Palmerston would show Trin alone putting petrol in his dad's white van and buying a drink and cigarettes from the counter around 11.10pm on the day of the murders. The next day, Trin would take another $100 out of Ponzi's credit card account. And also on this day, on March 2nd, the boys made a half-hearted attempt to burn any of the remaining evidence left from the crime, but they didn't finish the job, leaving half-burnt items of clothing in a burn pit on the Marakai property. At 9am on March 3, a group of tourists won a boat tour in the Adelaide River, so it was like a crocodile-spotting boat tour. So they're all out there, like, with cameras and stuff like that, wanting to look at crocodiles when they made a far more serious discovery. So floating in the river near the boat was the body of a young woman dressed only in pink underwear and a pink boob tube top. The body was located approximately 800 metres away from the bridge. So the people were like, they called the police and... So the police came out, but some something got lost in translation somewhere, and they ended up at another crocodile tour boat company that was further up the river, about a kilometre away, where they discovered another body. This one was older than the first, wearing a short black dress and jewellery. So the boys' ingenious plan to dispose of evidence via crocodile did not take into account the tendency of the saltwater crocodile to disperse into the Adelaide River floodplain during the wet season. So the torrential rains in the summer months would cause the Adelaide River to swell, filling the floodplain and providing crocodiles with an extra 1,000 square kilometres or so of real estate. So in the dry season, when the crocodiles were confined to just like the river and the riverbed itself, 
the bodies of Ponce and Noi would likely not have lasted very long at all. So the bodies of the two women were removed from the river and examined. Both Ponce and Noi had been bound with cable ties, as I'd mentioned. Um, their ankles were bound with three cable ties, one around each ankle and then one cable tie in the center connecting the other two ties. Ponce had a single cable tie around her right wrist with, wrist with a length of red nylon rope connecting the cable tie and the car battery. Noi's wrists were bound with three cable ties in the same way as the ankles, um, with red nylon rope also attached to the ties and then to a car battery. Um, Noi was also found to have a quantity of white masking tape wrapped around her face. And Ponzi had a deep Ponzi had a deep bruise to the right posterior of her skull, consistent with a striking blow that could have caused a loss of consciousness. She had another deep bruise to the side of her mouth and bruising on the front and back of her upper chest, as well as her shoulders. This bruising could have been caused by a blow or by being pushed off the railing of the bridge. Noi had bruising to her arms and a super, superficial laceration to her scalp. The cause of death for both women was determined to be drowning, meaning that tragically they were both alive but unconscious when Trent and McLean tossed them from the bridge. Mm. So the double murder prompted the creation of a 30 40-person task force with Trin and McLean quickly identified as persons of interest through phone records. So there are two pieces of phone evidence I couldn't, like, it was never explicitly stated in anything that I read, which was the, like, bit of evidence that connected it to him. Um, but both Trin and McLean had used their SIM cards in Ponzi's phone on the 6th of March. Um, and also they had the record of Trin making the phone calls to Ponzi initially. So I'm not sure... One or both of those was the evidence that was used to link them, but I couldn't work out myself which one was the one. Regardless, on the 7th of March, the police set out to Marakai to talk with the boys. Um, somewhat comically, the police vehicle got bogged outside Trin's house, and Trin and McLean came out to see what was going on. The police, quote, had a chat with Trin and McLean through the fence, and the boys asked the officers if they wanted to come inside for some water because it was a hot day. The police accepted the officer. The police accepted the offer, and they came inside Trin's house. The questioning continued, but the police described it as a general chit chat, not an interrogation. So the police told Trin and McLean that they were making inquiries about the bodies that had been discovered in the river, and they confirmed that Trin's family owned a van, but they didn't specifically question the boys about whether or not they knew the victims. Um, after the officers left, the boys panicked and began to put an escape plan in motion. They made arrangements to stay at a mate's house that night and drove to Ben McLean's mother's caravan to tell her that they were both sick of the Northern Territory and wanted to head off to Brisbane for a bit. So at the friend's house, they booked flights. We don't flights. want you here, dolls. We don't want you. It's not better. <laughs> it's not better. Um, they booked flights to Brisbane at the friend's house and they made arrangements to stay at another mate's place when they got to Brisbane. So they flew in the early morning of March 8th. As we all know from watching crime shows, the worst thing you can do if the police come to your house just for a general chit-chat, the, the most obvious sign that you're probably guilty of the crime is if you fuck off immediately afterwards. So the police were like, oh, okay, they've flown the coop. We're pretty sure they're responsible. Let's look after them. I'm making another assumption here because, again, it wasn't, in, it wasn't definitiv definitively stated in anything that I read. But I'm assume I think it was after they had fled to Brisbane, um, the police actually executed a search warrant at the at Trin's house, um, and they found items at the household, including cable ties, a cut cable tie in the rubbish bin, rope, and two rolls of masking tape. Um, more incriminating was prescription prescription medication belonging to Ponzi, her diabetic kit and her Centrelink card, as well as a key to her motel room and a key to a toolbox that was held in a bank safe belonging to Ponzi. As I mentioned earlier, um, clothing items belonging to the victims were found in a burn pit at the back of the property, including buttons from the jeans and shoes. So at midnight on March 11, the police searched a property in Brisbane's southern suburbs where they found Trin and McLean hiding in a cupboard. They were arrested and questioned at the scene, and this is where shit gets super frustrating. So these guys told one million stories about what happened, each one more bullshit than the last. So initially, initially when he was interviewed in the field, Trin 
denied involvement with the murders. He said, yes, I picked the women up. I drove them to my house. We had sex with them. But they were picked up by somebody in a dark blue car, and then I don't know what happened to them after that. Ben McLean, on the other hand, a likely story. Ben McLean, on the other hand, told police that he did commit the murders, but he only did it because the Hell's Angel Motorcycle Club told him to do it. Mm, So I think they're a bit busy with other stuff that they don't really. (sighs) Apparently, the Hell's Angels were like having a banger of the time in the Northern Territory around the early 2000s, so it's maybe not as unrealistic. As it pos- like if I said the Hell's Angels told me to do something, people would be like, "What Hell's Angels? You live in a town of two hundred thousand people." Um, but apparently, yeah, they 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 were doing some stuff in the Northern Territory at the time, but not telling teenagers to murder people, obviously. So Ben McLean's first statement to the police was that, "quote I was in trouble, and a friend helped to get me out of trouble." He told police that the trouble that he was in was that he had ripped off the Hells Angels of $50,000 worth of speed. So I I googled it and apparently you can get a gram of speed for between 90 <laughs> and $400. So the Hells Angel gave this guy like half a kilo of speed for free. I don't know if people do that. I don't I, I, I don't know much about the drug industry, but I don't feel like that's how it works. No, I don't know much about speed. I had to Google whether or not speed and meth were the same thing, which they're not. <laughs> I had to oh, Zane, I just gotta tell you Ellen was like, I had to Google whether meth or speed was the same thing. <laughs> Turns out they're not. <laughs> I don't know a lot about speed or meth. Or anything stronger than a Panadol wrapper, like, to be yeah, honest with you. Anything, <laughs> anything that over a Panadol extra and I'm completely useless. Exactly. So Ben's story was that he had encountered a representative from the Hells Angels who was named H um, about four months prior to the murders. H gave McLean the speed on credit and then after a period of time passed, H confronted McLean and said that he had ripped the angels off and that he owed them $50,000. McLean was like, um, I'm 18 and I work on an okra farm. I don't have $50,000. And H hit McLean on the side of the face and told them, told him if he didn't get them the money, he'd be dead. Or, H said, just do one little job for us and we can all make this go away. So McLean said that H said that there were two Thai prostitutes who were cutting into the Hell's Angels business and the angels needed them gone. Uh, McLean agreed to do the job and H gave him the names and the photos of the women. McLean told the police that he wasn't told anything else other than that he would be able to find the women at the Palms Hotel. So the police were like, okay, like this sounds like a a storyline from fucking GTA or some bullshit, but sure, benefit of the doubt. And they asked him, how did Trin get involved in everything? And McLean was like, okay, so, like, I came to Trin and I told him that I'd fucked up, like, I'd gotten into drugs and I've got this massive debt with the Hells Angels and now I have to kill two people. And Trin was basically like, that's okay, buddy, I'll help you out. As you do. So McLean told the police that he didn't tell Trin anything much about the women, just that one of them was a well-known prostitute, um... He didn't give them the names of the women because he couldn't pronounce them, but he gave them descriptions of the women and told Trin that they could be found at the Palms Hotel. He said that they discussed aspects of the plan, such as where to dispose of the bodies at the caravan that McLean's mum lived in. McLean said that on the day of the murders, Trin went to pick up the women in the Toyota van. The plan was to have sex with the women and then kill them. Because may as well, right? Um... McLean said that he slept with the younger women, the younger woman and that he thought that Trin had had sex with the older woman. Then they told the women to sit on the couch and he and Trin cable tied their hands and feet together. He said that the younger woman tried to object but the older woman was like told her to just like be quiet and agree with them and like you know if you do what they say then maybe they'll let us go kind of thing. McLean then said that they put the women in the back of the van in an upright seated position where they then cable tied the women to the car batteries that McLean had located at the back of the house. McLean said that Trin specific that it was Trin specifically who cable tied the women and he said that they were cable tied and he didn't see any red rope at this point in time. He then said that he and Trin discussed what they were going to do with the women next. McLean said that initially he was supposed to kill the women but he chickened out because quote he'd never done it before and he was quote, not particularly that type of person, but the plan was to break their necks or strangle them and then dump them over the bridge. 
He then said that Trin said that since McLean said he couldn't do it, that he would do it instead as a friend. Because that's just friends helping out friends, you know. That's just that's just homies being homies. Lots so, of touch of murder between friends. Exactly. You know when people are like, oh, I'd help you hide a body. I, this, uh, I wouldn't. It's I just wouldn't a statement. help you. I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't help you hide a body for a million billion dollars. I wouldn't. I'd be like, sure, Jess, I'll help you. Triple zero. Um, unless, of course, it's an abusive husband, in which case we yeah. go Dixie Chicks goodbye Earl with it. <laughs> but even still, maybe I'd call even the police still, first. No. Um, so Trin sat in the back of the van while McLean drove to the Adelaide River. McLean said that he didn't see the murder take place because he didn't want to see it, so like he didn't look back at all while he was driving. Um, the police repeatedly asked him if he knew how Trin committed the murders, and McLean kept saying no. So the police asked, like, did you talk about it after he did it? To which McLean replied, no. The police asked, so you've got no idea how he did it? And McLean said, no, because he said he'd prefer not to talk about it in case I get nightmares. So McLean said that he had music on while he was driving the van and he didn't hear any sounds coming from the back of the van and nor was he aware of any signs of a struggle. He said that they stopped at the Adelaide River Bridge to dispose of the bodies, keeping an eye out for headlights. McLean said that he opened the sliding door of the van and Trin passed him the legs of one of the dead women while Trin himself took hold of the arms. He described the skin of the women as feeling wet and cold. They then threw the bodies over the railing of the bridge into the river. McLean didn't describe any physical injury, didn't describe any of the physical injuries to the bodies, and he was not aware of any tape being on either of the bodies. And he also didn't know about anything falling out of the van onto the bridge. He also denied any involvement in the after-the-fact accessing of Ponzi's bank accounts. Towards the end of the interview, McLean was asked if there was anything else he could say that may help explain his actions, and McLean said, I'm just sorry for what I've done, but I understand if anyone else is in my predicament, it's either me or them. They would have made the same decision. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I don't know. <laughs> I don't think many people would. So that's Ben McLean's version of events. Um, Trin, this is, this is just in the police interview. So Trin initially was less fanciful, um, so, as I mentioned earlier, he initially said that he didn't know what happened to them, that they were picked up by a stranger in a blue car. When he was questioned by police a second time, like actually at the police station this time, he actually straight up admitted to the murders. Trin was very short and blunt in his responses to the police's questions and didn't give any extra details, really. So the police asked in regards to the murders, what can you tell us about it? And Trin responded, yeah, that I was involved, that I did it myself. When asked how he did it, he said, um, just tied them up, like, yeah. The police asked what else, and he said, threw them off the bridge. So, like, very blunt, very like, uh, yeah, I guess I, like, uh, threw them off the bridge to the crocodiles, sort of thing. When asked why he, why he committed the murders, he responded, just came over me suddenly, just, yeah, don't really know what happened, really, yeah, just happened, couldn't control it. Later, he stated that the, that the women, who at this point were bound in the back of the van, had done, quote, something that he couldn't remember, but that had irritated him enough to strangle them until he believed that they were dead. He stated that while he strangled one woman, the other just sat there doing nothing, didn't cry out, didn't object, anything like that, just sat there quietly and, like, waited for her turn. Um, also, I should say now... Um, I keep on just saying, like, the woman or the younger woman or the older woman because that is but kind of... that's what they said. That's what they said. I'm not, yeah. like, I don't want to be like, and then he did this to Ponzi because we don't know, we don't actually definitively know what. this is his what. version of events. This is his version of events. Um, so Trin made a few departures from the story that Ben McLean told, aside from the whole Hell's Angel thing. He initially said that McLean was at home the entire time, that Trin was the one driving the van, and that he was solely responsible for the deaths of Ponzi and Noy and the disposal of their bodies, which the police were pretty skeptical about straight away, based on the fact that it would be incredibly difficult for one person, let alone one 18-year-old boy, um, to subdue, murder, and then, like, physically lift and dispose of the bodies of two people and, you know, throw them over the bridge. Um, he also said that initially, like, he took Noy to the bridge, threw her off the bridge first, and then Ponzi asked if he could drive to her motel room and get some of her personal items. So he drove there with Ponzi in the van, 
um, picked up her diabetic kit, which Trin incorrectly thought was a blood pressure monitor, and then Ponzi told him to stop at the ATM and take out, quote, whatever he wanted from her bank account. Apparently, Ponzi told Trin that she needed the money to clear a debt, so they went to a BP and met some guy and gave him the money, and Ponzi just sat there through the entirety of this transaction and didn't say anything and didn't call out for help or anything like that. And then Trin just drove her back to the bridge, killed her, and tossed her over the side. I mean, obviously all of this is just, like, cobbled together to, like, try and explain how he came to be in possession of her credit cards and her, you know, medical equipment and stuff like that. Um, But he did repeat to the police several times that Ben McLean was not involved in the murders, that he was not present when key events happened, um, including the burning of the clothing the next day, and that he only told McLean that he was responsible after the discovery of the bodies was reported on the news. So, obviously, both of the perpetrators have confessed, although they do have wildly different versions of how the murders went down. So they were formally charged with murder on March 15th, 2004, committed to stand trial in September, and the trial would begin in February of 2005. Both McLean and Trin pleaded not guilty. The case was prosecuted by the Director of Public Prosecutions, the dopely named Rex Wild QC. And both boys were defended by Colin McDonald, QC. Both the boys were questioned extensively on the stand during trial, and they came up with yet another new story to tell at this point in time. Because why wouldn't you? Because why wouldn't you? Because the the previous ones worked out really, really well. So they were just like, no, this time we've got it. This time we've nailed it. This is like so good, you guys. We're going to like fully get off. So the first person to give evidence was Ben. Well, not the first person, but the first one of the two to give evidence was Ben McLean. So McLean made a formal admission that his story of the events of the murder that he gave to police was a lie. So not only was there no debt and no Hell's Angels, but actually he wasn't present for the murders at all. His version 3.0 of the night in question went like so. So he and Trin spent the morning picking okra. Trin got a call around midday and told McLean to stay at the farm because he had an errand to run in town. McLean then had a nap in the caravan at the front of Trin's place, sleeping till the early evening when Trin came back, saying that they had guests. He had with him two women that McLean had never seen before. Trin introduced the younger woman as Noi and the older woman as Mum, which is a nickname that Ponzi used that I don't want to unpack in any way. So McLean had sex with Noi, Trin had sex with both, and then McLean and Noi apparently in this version of the story had a shower together. And then McLean and the two women chilled in the caravan listening to music for a period of time. Then Trin comes at the door of the caravan and is like, yo, I need the girls. And then McLean McLean stays in the caravan for 40 odd minutes by himself, just like chilling and listening to music until he hears raised voices, which sounded like arguing. He goes out of the caravan and sees Trin with, quote, three or four Asian men that McLean had never seen before. The conversation stopped when McLean came outside and Trin escorted him back to the caravan. So McLean went back to the caravan where he stayed for a little while longer before Trin returned and said that he needed to take the women to meet the men at another location. McLean was like, you know, let me come with you. I can I can help you out. And Trin was like, no, I don't want you to be involved in this. My past has caught up with me and I don't want you to be like implicated in this crime. And McLean, being the loyal friend he was, just came along anyway, jumping in the driver's seat of the van. He saw what looked like two people in the back of the van and assumed that it was Ponzi and Noi, but didn't speak to them and didn't, like, look them full in the face to confirm whether it was them. So McLean started driving in the direction of Darwin, and he and Trin kept on arguing about whether or not McLean should be accompanying him on this trip to deliver these women to the men. Trin told him to pull over, and McLean did so, and he got out of the car and waited on the side of the road for a few hours next to a satellite dish for Trin to come back from the job. He said that he was too tired to walk to his mum's place or anywhere nearby, so he just lay underneath the satellite dish for like five hours until he heard the beep of the van's horn. He got back into the van, which was now empty except for Trin, and they went back to Trin's place, where McLean had yet another nap in the caravan. On cross-examination, Rex Wild asked McLean why he was so well, damn tired. exhausted. Yeah, exactly. Rex Wild is like, why were you so tired that day? And McLean was like, yeah, I don't know, and admitted that he had slept, quote, pretty well all afternoon. 
He stated that Ponzi and Noy were dressed, quote, pretty informally when they left Trent's property, although he wasn't really too concerned about that fact. Um, he was questioned about why he felt it was necessary for him to accompany Trent on this trip, and McLean was like, well, he was going off to meet four guys, and it was just him, and I'm his friend, so I need to go and help him out. Was that incredibly loud noise you just made, cat treats? Maybe. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> So he's like, I'm his friend, I've got to help him out. Rex Wilde was like, okay, so you're there in the van going to help your mate deliver prostitutes to four random Asian men, correct? And he's like, yes. Um, Rex is like, so they're bound in the back of the van. And Ben is like, yes. And Rex is like, and at no point did any of the women make any protest about this. Ben's like, nah. And Rex is like, so there are two women bound in the back of a van that you're driving sitting quietly and politely, not objecting to the fact that they've been restrained, not questioning where you're taking them or questioning what's going to happen to them. That Ben's seems like, unlikely. Yep. He's like, yes, that is, that is in fact what happened. Thank you, Rex Wilde, QC. So McLean also said in cross-examination that Trin cooked up the story about the Hell's Angels. He and Trin cooked up the Hell's Angels story together in the taxi on the way to the airport when they decided to skip town. So they went over the story um, after their arrival in Brisbane so they could get the facts straight, and they told the friends that they stayed with about the Hells Angels story. McLean said that he told the police the Hells Angels story rather than the blue car story that he and Trent had also come up with because they had told the friends that they were staying with in Brisbane the Hells Angels story, and McLean assumed that the police were going to question them as well, so he was like, we should all have a consistent kind of tale, basically. He said that they were, quote, consistent, but somehow a consistent but ludicrous story. (laughs) So uh, he said that there were, quote, parts of the truth in his confession to police, but not about his own involvement in the killings. So he said that he had made up the parts of his involvement because the story was that he was the one with the debt with the Hells Angels. So he should be involved in some aspects of the murder, but he actually wasn't in this new story. He said that he had made the assumption that cable ties were used to connect the batteries to the women because he had seen batteries and cable ties in the van. He said that the bodies, he said that he said that the bodies felt wet and cold when he touched them because he had heard from CSI that bodies were cold after death and that sometimes people evacuate their bladders and bowels upon death. So all in all, McLean's new and zesty story was that he was totally innocent and trended everything because of this shady and ambiguous past. So then Trin gets up on the stand, and his story is even more buck-fucking-wild than the Hells Angels version of events. And I I have condensed this so far down to the point where it barely makes sense. It barely made sense in the first place, but I read it over so many times, and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. So (laughs) if it doesn't make sense, it doesn't need to. It's a lie, but I'm going to tell you the, the, the framework of what he said. So basically, on the stand, Trent said that he lied to the police initially about his involvement in the murders of the two women, because he and his family were at risk of being murdered by a man named Lee, who was the head of a gang called the Vietnamese People Community, that Trent had joined as an apprentice member when he was living in Brisbane, and had been desperately trying to escape ever since. Uh... He said that he, when he was living in Brisbane, he wanted to leave the group because he felt like he was living a double life. So when his dad bought the farm in the NT, he jumped at the chance to leave, but he was warned by a senior member that the consequences would be dire if he did so. Um, I mentioned earlier, like very, very earlier, that after living in the Northern Territory for a while, Trin went back to Brisbane to do an apprenticeship, and he came back because he didn't like it. But in the when he was like in this trial, he said actually. You know, I didn't come back because gang. it was the gang. He said that he was threatened by the Mr. Lee, and so he headed back to Darwin where he would be safe. He said that he was put in contact with Ponzi by members of the group because she was an ecstasy dealer. So they were put in touch, and Trin would, like, order ecstasy through her and would go and, like, pick up supplies of pills to sell um, and do, like, transactions and stuff for the gang. So the gang would be like, yo, Trin, we need what's a lot of ecstasy. A hundred pills. Here's four million dollars. Go get it for us. So there is like 
there is like another full podcast worth of like bullshit testimony about this fake Vietnamese gang that I'm just gonna fast forward over because whatever. Um, so on the 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 time of the murders, around the time of the murders, Trin said that he was having increased contact with Ponzi in February of 2004 because she was looking to expand her business outside of Darwin, the prostitution business, not the ecstasy business. Um, uh-huh. And Trin had informed her that there were rooms for rent in the Marakai slash Humpty Doo area, and he'd agreed to drive her out there to have a look at them and see if they were suitable. So they made the arrangements for the 1st of March. And around the same time, he had had... He had had a conversation with Mr. Lee, who had given him, and I literally quote what he said, an offer he couldn't refuse. So basically, Lee said that if Trin did this job for him, that the gang would, like, get off his back and, like, let him be free or whatever, and there would be no consequences for leaving the gang. So on the 29th of February, Lee calls Trin and says, okay, tomorrow's the day for the job, get ready. Go buy the things that you'll need and wait my phone call with further instructions. Trin was like, okay, well, I've got to take Ponzi to look at the new business areas tomorrow. Like, I've got to do both of these things. How am I going to do both of these things? But he he gets ready anyway. So March 1st arrives. He tells Ben McLean that he has got business in town and to just hang tight at the farm. While on the drive to town to pick up Ponzi, he receives the call from Lee asking if he has the cable ties and rope and masking tape that he had told him to get, and Trin stops at the super cheap auto to pick them up. He then heads to Ponzi's motel room, hands her $200, which he alleges he owes her from a past ecstasy bill, and picks up her annoy with the intention of driving them to the Corroboree Park Tavern so they could make arrangements with the pub owner there. Then he took them back to his place on Bar Road, wakes up Ben McLean, and they have sexual intercourse with the women, the particulars of which are basically the same as the other versions, so I'm not going to go into them again. He said that when McLean and the women were chilling in the caravan after the, in- after the intercourse occurred, his phone rang and a man's voice told him to open up the gate. He did so. And there was this guy who was also a member of the gang called Long, who Trin had had dealings with before in this fantasy universe he'd invented where he was a gangster, and six other men that he didn't recognize, one of whom was named Jojo. So Long was like, hey, don't worry, you don't have to do the job anymore, we're going to do it for you, and asked if Ponzi and Noi were with him. Trin said yes, and then took him took the men to a shed that was used on the farm for like processing the okra and stuff, um, where the women were. One of the unnamed cronies said told Trin to give him the bag of cable ties, which Trin did. The men, the man took some of them, I guess, and then Trin said he threw the bag with the remaining cable ties into the van. The men began, then began subduing Ponzi and Noi and bound them with the cable ties. So in this version of events, Trin said that the women had tried to fight off the attackers but were unsuccessful. Uh, the men then picked the women up fireman style and took them to a cool room in the shed. Trin was like, to long, who's in charge here like why why are you guys doing this and long was like okay well we're here on lee's orders so trin goes outside of the shed for where all the cars are and goes to talk to lee and in trin's like version of this lee like winds down the window like the window like goes down like this like (laughs) in a movie and trin's like this isn't what we agreed upon like this isn't what was supposed to happen and lee responded to him in vietnamese change of plans whole thing is just so stupid it's just it's such a stupid bullshit fantasy movie what is this what i the feel like fuck? i'm having a seizure i felt like that for the past fortnight i'm like what do you mean anyway there's so much more to go i'm so sorry um so at this point ben mclean emerges from the caravan and is like what's going on and trin is like go back inside the caravan my pastor's caught up with me blah 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 um god we're not in the western film like like, like this is not the oh I can't think of any gangster movies this is not Scarface <laughs> <laughs> is Scarface a gangster movie Zane yes he says yes so yes. You, you did it so McLean goes back inside the caravan Trim then goes back into the cool room where the women are like bound up and is like what's going on why are you being taken by this very real gang, the Vietnamese people community? And the women are like, hey, can you cut these cable ties off us? And Trin's like, yeah, good shout. So he goes to get a pair of secateurs and tries to cut off the cable ties. He says to the court where he's being questioned 
by a lawyer who went to law school for 55 million years. He says that he went to get a pair of secateurs and came back and tried to cut the cable ties off, but he couldn't. What? Cable ties are fucking plastic. Like, that should have been the biggest fucking clue. I mean, obviously, it's a big fucking clue that's all a lie. But, like, he's like, oh, yeah, and I struggled to, I couldn't, I just couldn't cut the cable ties. What the fuck? They're just plastic. There's nothing special about them. You can cut them with scissors. You can cut them with anything. You can cut them with hopes and dreams if you try hard enough. You can't just pull them off. That's the one thing that you can't do with cable ties is pull them. You can you can injure them in any way. You just can't pull them apart. Same. Ellen just said you can cut cable ties with hopes and dreams if you try hard enough. <laughs> So anyway, the henchmen, I don't know what the henchmen are doing when they're not doing henchmen stuff. They come to take the women from the cool room. They put them in Trin's dad's van, and then Trin was told to take the women into town and await further instruction. Despite the fact that he was also told by Long before that he didn't need to do the job anymore, and they were going to do it, but whatever. Now the best the best way to go is to whack these women in the back of Trin's dad's van and have him and his mate take them to wherever the fuck they're supposed to be being taken. So they're in the van, taking the women to the undisclosed location. Uh, at this point, I don't know why he says this, but uh, Trin, being the hero he is, successfully now snips the cable tie on Ponzi's wrist. Um, so they're driving, and Trin, but just on the one. I don't know if I mentioned it before, or if you guys remember, but she only had one cable tie on one of her wrists. So that this is his way of explaining that. So they're driving, and Trin gets another call from Long, saying that there was a car waiting for him on the side of the road, and that Trin should bring the white guy along with him. And at this point in time, Trin's like, oh my god, my best friend Ben, I can't get him involved in this. So he's like, Ben, get out of the car, wait at this satellite dish for an undisclosed amount of time, and I'll come back for you. And Ben's like, no, you're my friend. But okay, I'm gonna sleep under the satellite dish for five hours. Bye. What the fuck is going on? I don't know. So Trin is now driving the van. Um... For some reason, Ponzi tells him to tie her back up again, so he does it. Don't ask me why. Um, then he sees a ute on the side of the road, and he fo- I don't know how he knows the ute is a gang ute. He just does. Don't ask questions. Um, he follows the ute into the Jukbinji National Park. The ute stops, as does Trin in the van, and Long and Jojo get out of the ute, as do a bunch of other henchmen dudes. One of the dudes takes Ponzi from the van and takes her to another vehicle. Now, Noi started yelling and screaming, and another henchman, who is named Easy, E-Z-Y, told Trin to tape her mouth to shut her up, um, which Trin did. Then Easy told Trin to strangle Noi, which Trin refused. And Easy then pulled a gun on Trin, but Trin just, like, walked away and was like, no, you can't kill me, I guess. I don't know. Then later, he saw Jojo, um with his hand around Noi's throat in the rear vision mirror of the van. So then Long, Easy, and Jojo all get into the van with Trin. Um, at this point, Trin says that he thought that Noi was in the van, but he wasn't sure. Um, they drive off with Long driving this time. Um, and Trin said that he thought that he was being taken somewhere to be killed. But instead, they stopped at the Adelaide River Bridge. Long and one of the henchmen got out of the van, and Trin said that he then heard something fall into the water. Then they got back into the van, headed in the direction of Darwin, where they again stopped by another mystery- behind another mystery vehicle that was waiting for them. Long said that the next part of the thing for Trin was to go get the number of a person who was working at a Shell petrol station in Palmerston. So Trin was like, okay, we'll do. Ponzi was then put back into the van. Um, and Long told Trin that Ponzi had instructions for him, so listen to her and do what she says. And then he and the henchman fucked off. So Ponzi was like, okay, here are my directions to you. Go to my motel room and get my credit card and get all this money out of the ATM for me, which he does. Then Trin goes out to the Shell station in Palmerston to get the number of the person that Long told him to get. All the while on this drive, he was receiving calls from Long checking up on him, which completely and totally explains all of the phone evidence that showed Trin driving from Palmerston back towards Marakai. So, um, on the road, on the drive back, <laughs> this is so fucking stupid. On the drive back, he once again happened to run into the other gang vehicles, so he stopped the van, gave Long the details of the Shell Station Palmerston employee, who I can only imagine must have been 
Palmerston's answer to Al fucking Capone or something like that. And then handed over Ponzi's money and credit cards to Long. Then Long, Jojo, and Easy all pile back into the van, um, and they keep driving. At one point during the drive, Easy became irate at Ponzi, striking her in the head, which caused her to fall unconscious. They then drove back to the Adelaide River Bridge. Once again, being the hero that he was, Trin tried to feel whether or not Ponzi still had a pulse, but Easy pointed the gun at him again. They stopped the van, Jojo took out Ponzi's body, and threw her over the bridge. Then they all drive back to Trin's dad's okra farm in Marakai, where they dropped Trin off and were like, Hey buddy, th- thanks for doing all that work for us. Uh, we'll let you know, we'll, we'll help you escape from Darwin so you can head somewhere else where the heat dies down. And they all just leave. Then Trin gets back into the van, drives to the satellite dish while where Ben McLean is just like sitting on the side of the road, picks him up and goes back. So I'm so sorry for filling your lives and your ears and your souls with that stupid, stupid story. <laughs> but that is what he testified happened. So I had to repeat it. And he that, said that in a court. A court. And there was so much more, Jess. There was more of that. There was like. He said that in front of a lawyer under oath. Lawyers asked him those questions. He thought, he was like, okay, fuck, I've killed these women. What is a story that I can come up with that gets me off the hook? Vietnamese gangs. In Darwin? It's just a nightmare. And I think it really speaks to the immaturity. Like, I know, like, they're 18, so they're technically men, and I keep calling them boys, and that's probably, like, you know giving them something that they don't deserve but they're so fucking childish this whole thing was so childish to just like it's like a kid like with his hand in the cookie jar and the mom's like are you stealing the cookie and the kid's like no it's like you didn't even why would you think that anybody would believe that stupid lie you've got cookie all over your face anyway so so he also told the court that he purposely left items belonging to the victim's at his home so that the police would investigate and then put Trin into custody because he believed that he was safer in prison than he was, like, on the street at the possible mercy of the Vietnamese people community. Um, and when he it's was... like the, uh, name of that, the name of that gang. It just sounds like, like a I, club. Like, hey, come to the... It sounds like a sportsman's club. Like, it sounds like a club where old Vietnamese men get together... And play shuffleboard or something. Yeah. Like, hey, the the Vietnamese People Club is having a sausage sizzle fundraiser so they can. Yeah, exactly. It's so stupid. If it's a real gang, which I didn't research because I assumed it wasn't, but if it was, if it is a real gang, you need a name change. That is not intimidating. That's not strong enough, doll. It's not going to cut the mustard. So when uh, Trin was asked why the Vietnamese people community even wanted Ponzi dead in the first place, considering she was their ecstasy hookup. Uh, Trin said that she was a police informant, which the of police... Of course she was. The police would have known. So the poli- the whole thing would have been different because the police would have been like, hey, our police informant has been killed and she has these connections to this gang that we know about. We're going to investigate it as Vietnamese a gang killing. Gang. What the fuck? Anyway, so the defense lawyer Colin McDonald oh, said in his closing God. argument that the cold-blooded, brutal nature of the murders seemed more the hallmark of a gang than of two teenage boys, but Rex Wild QC was like, no. Rex Wild was not having it. Rex Wild was like, this story is Rex fucking wild. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like, yeah, sure, it was a cold-blooded murder, definitely, but only teenage boys would be fucking stupid to commit the murders in the way they did and then try and cover it up with such an insane fucking story he didn't say it like that obviously but that was the vibe story is rex fucking wild (laughs) so anyway now the jury had to pass through pages and pages and pages of fucking bullshit bullshit to decide whether or not there was a kernel of truth to any of it so the justice uh providing the case presiding over the case justice dean mildren pointed out a couple of inconsistencies um to the jury other than the baloney the whole fucking (laughs) Um, uh, around things like the fact that, you know, yeah, Sean McLean said that he didn't do it, but is it possible for one person to dispose of the bodies in that manner, etc., etc. Um, the jury took three days to deliberate on, on, and on March 19, 2005, delivered a unanimous verdict of guilty. Thank God. Thank God. 
So in his sentencing, Justice Mildred found that I know I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry. Um, Justice Mildred found that the facts of the murders were as I described them initially. Um, so no Hell's Angels, no Vietnamese peoples, whatever, just Trin and McLean. What he couldn't determine, however, was motive. There's absolutely no clear motive whatsoever for the murders, which Justice Mildred found alarming. He stated that the murders were cold-blooded and that Trin had planned them sometime beforehand, as evidenced by the purchase of the rope, cable ties, and tape before the murders. Yeah, there was definitely premeditation if he had all of that shit ready. I was going to leave it to the end, but I just feel like this was a kid who was like, I could, I want to, I just want to kill somebody. I who, just, I want to kill someone because I fucking can. Because I and feel I'm like take advantage I can. Of someone yeah. Because I can... Like, pay them to come to my house exactly. so then I don't have to even fucking try. Exactly, exactly. For fuck's sake. Um, so Justice Mildred believe, said that he believed that the boys apparently um, – the boys believed that the bodies were never going to be found and basically that they were cocky as evidenced by the fact that they basically went about their lives business as usual after the murders up until the police started catching their trail – and that they only made a half-assed attempt to destroy evidence. How fucking arrogant. I know. How fucking arrogant. They really believe that, that, like, well, the crocodiles will eat them and nobody will ever know and we're totally fine. Like, they were just hanging out with friends and, like, chilling in the days afterwards. They're fucking people, you dickheads. Like Exactly. Um, the judge also stated that while McLean and Trin had expressed some belated sorrow for the victims, that there was no evidence of any real contrition. He found that Trin was the principal offender and that McLean should be viewed as an aider and a better. A psychological assessment of McLean demonstrated to the judge that his involvement in the crime was a matter of misplaced loyalty and immaturity, and that he was previously of good character, although that good character did not stop him from repeatedly lying to the police. In contrast, the judge said that Trin was cold and calculating and manipulative, having shown no emotion throughout the entirety of the proceedings. Although the judge did believe that Ben McLean had a less active role in the murder, in the eyes of the law, they were both equally guilty of the crime. They were sentenced to life in prison with a non-parole period of 25 years, meaning that they will be eligible for release in 2029. No, that's too soon. That's too soon. Um, In 2006, both Trin and McLean appealed their sentences, uh, McLean on the grounds that he was innocent and Trin on the grounds that some prejudicial information um, that had been redacted from the police interviews was given to the transcript, given to the jury in their transcripts, like to use as a guide while they were deciding the sentencing. But the appellate court was basically like, no, we don't think it's prejudicial enough. It didn't really have any impact on your guilt in the crime, and therefore both appeals were dismissed. And that's the story. I'm angry. I think it is just so disgraceful that they just came up with these stupid stories. It just makes it just made me so angry. I was like, just own up to it, you fucking cowards. Like, if you don't have the balls to admit to a murder, you probably don't have the balls to commit a murder. No. Oh my god. Like it's just like another example of you're exactly right, of they could they killed someone because they could mm-hmm. and because they wanted to. Like that. And Ben McLean was just stupid. He was just like, okay, like I'm just going to – like this isn't excusing him because he is equally guilty in my eyes as oh, well. Oh, God, no. But like we're just a fucking shit show from top to bottom. Oh, my God, those poor women. And it just brings to light once again about like people's lack of – Compassion. Compassion for anybody in any circumstance, but especially when it comes to sex workers mm-hmm. who are constantly in danger in their jobs because they're vulnerable people. Mm-hmm. They, they're, they're in a vulnerable position, but their work is work. Like, it's legitimately work. If there wasn't a demand for it, they wouldn't exist. They wouldn't exist. Holy fucking shit. Yes. So I hope that, you know, I hope that a few more people know. No, I'm so glad I know about that now. Yeah. Um. I'm sorry if it made no sense. It makes no sense when you read it too. No, like, no it 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 doesn't make any it it doesn't make sense just because of how you told it. It just doesn't make sense because these fucking idiots are dumb. Thanks, thanks for that. Oh my god. Okay. Well, um, excellent work, Ellen. As always, I can totally understand why there would have been a complete lack of information just because there would be little to no representation in the press when it comes to a crime like this because there was really victims, yeah there was just the trial of color 
and especially around the time of the Peter Falconio case, yeah. like, that's fucked. Um, thank you so much for your hard work. That's okay. As always, stunning job. Um, so if you liked uh, the episode, why don't you go on your iTunes app and post a review or if you're a Spotify girl or guy or anything in between, um, go on our Facebook or our Instagram and let us know. Um, we have one last case and it's a, the big kahuna for the, the, the wrapping up of the Northern Territory season. We are in for a big ride. We are. Um, yeah, Jesus. Um, and then, yeah, we'll be doing ACT and then sort of figuring out where to go with next. So if you have any cases that you would like us to look at in the future, please send us an email at murder in the, laws of, murder in the land of Oz at gmail.com. So sorry. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Get in touch. Become a Patreon. Join the family. We love it. We live it. You know, rock on. Um, okay, cool. Well, we'll see you in two weeks, dolls. We love it. We live it. Rock on. Yeah, we love it. We live it. Rock on. Thanks, everybody. Okay, goodbye. Bye. So, what should I listen to now? We are Castology. This is our podcast about podcasts. We are your castologists, Patrick Shearer, Liz Best, and Zancy Weber. Each week, we'll bring you three of the best and sometimes not so best podcasts around. We'll also do the hard work and trawl the RSS feeds to find the newest podcast that should be on your radar. And then next week, we come back and tell you what we thought of the recommendations and bring three new sparkling podcasts to check out. Now, will we always agree with each other's picks? Probably not. But hey, you're clever. You know that's how reviews work. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any podcatcher of your choice. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.